When it comes to climate change, there are two parallel universes out there, or so it seems. On the one hand, we've got the science, and that's pretty clear and pretty straightforward. And then we've got what's actually going on on the ground. And these genuinely could be different universes of activity. So the IPCC, for all its faults and all the criticisms of it, has been at its usual task. The latest report is probably more dire than the ones preceding it, but it's been a pretty clear track the IPCC has pursued. The science, the theory of climate change is very well known, and it's very old. It's 19th century. Nobody seriously disputes the core scientific theories that lie behind all the work done on climate change. The predictions, the forecasts, the scenarios, well, they depend on a great deal of uncertain evidence. But the direction of travel is pretty straightforward. The forecasts have got, if anything, better. And in line with the theory and the evidence, we now have a world that's over one degree warmer than it was going back to the Industrial Revolution. What's more, it's pretty hard to argue that if we go on like we're going, then, well, we're going to see 2.5, 2.8, 3 degrees, possibly 4 degrees of warming. And the reality of this is not in some long-distance future, by which time we might have technologies to literally manage the atmosphere. It's this century. It's going to happen to people who are already alive today. And it's pretty hard to take any other view that this is a bleak outlook. Sure, for countries like the UK, it's going to get probably somewhat better before it gets worse. You know, warmer weather, longer growing seasons, less uh, hypothermia winter, all these kind of things have upsides as well as downsides. But globally, there really is no doubt about the balance between the benefits and the costs of climate change. So it's out there. It's there for people to respond to. And the UN and the UN Secretary General has again as his predecessors and himself have done again and again and again, said this is unsustainable. And he's right. But then there's another universe, which is what's actually happening out there in the world. Faced with this enormous threat of climate change, ask yourself what actually is being done. Now, you may fall for all the kind of optimistic stuff about, you know, another wind farm's been opened, another solar farm has been developed. You might even get terribly excited about hydrogen and small modular reactors and so on and so forth. And there are some reasons for doing so, although you shouldn't get caught up in the idea that renewables are going to get ever cheaper you should just have a look at what's happened to the costs in the last year or so, and that will disabuse you of the idea that there's some nirvana around the corner 
And all we have to do is just reap the benefits of those cheaper alternatives to fossil fuels. And indeed, if they were so much cheaper, we really wouldn't have to do much because it'd be economic for everyone to do this stuff anyway. So you might get a bit excited by that stuff. And some of that is exciting. But you have to put it into context. You know, if the amount of wind doubles in the electricity generation frame, well, so what? You know, global warming, climate change is a global phenomenon. And the reality is that the world depends about 80% on fossil fuels. It's not, you know, we're just about on the cusp of getting rid of fossil fuels because we've got all this wind and solar. It's 80%, and it's stubbornly 80%. It was 80% back in 1970. It's not shifted. And the reality out there is that what isn't fossil fuels in our energy supplies is mainly nuclear and hydro. The wind, the solar, yeah, there's a bit of it. Yeah, there's going to be some more. Yep, that's all a good thing. But it's still just scratching the surface of the kind of transition that needs to be made. And not only is it the case that 80% of our energy comes from fossil fuels, and not just globally, by the way, in Europe and the UK and Germany, it's almost as bad. But it's that these new technologies that we're relying upon, particularly the renewables and the batteries and electric cars and so on, aren't quite as clean as everyone would want you to believe. And indeed, when one looks down the full supply chain, which gets you to the solar panel on your roof or the charge point on the motorway, if you can actually get to a charge point, the stuff behind that is anything but green. Well, how could I say that? Well, let's look at the minerals that are required to provide those wind farms with their technology. Or let's look at the minerals that go into the battery. You know, some people in the mining industry say, if you think we've done a lot of mining in the industrialization of the world in the last couple of centuries, you ain't seen nothing yet, as the phrase goes. The sheer scale of the mining required for the so-called rare earths, for the lithium, for the nickel, for the cobalt, for the copper, and all the other minerals we're going to need is just huge. And if you just take a look at, say, the massive cobalt mines in the Congo and have a look and see how much devastation's involved, let alone all the fossil fuels to power the mining equipment, the idea you're driving around your nice green car because it's all electric and therefore you're being net zero is, you know, it would be laughable if it wasn't so serious. That's not to say you shouldn't have an electric car. It's simply to say, don't think that we switch from a purely dirty world to a purely clean world in just one big happy leap. It's not like that. And what's more, those minerals are going to cost a great deal. And remember, too, that the wind and the solar, all very, very important for the transition away from fossil fuels. These are intermittent technologies. They are technologies which require backup from something else. 
and as Europe in particular has discovered, in the short to medium term, that's called gas, whether you like it or not. Of course, people say, well, batteries will solve these problems. But first of all, remember, those batteries are anything but purely green in themselves. And also, they don't solve the substantive problem of the long storage requirements in the darker months and colder months of winter. None of that's new. And those batteries feed across to the transport side. And on the transport side, you might think that we're all going to rush out and be really good and buy little electric cars. And in general, if we're going to carry on with fossil fuel powered cars for some time, we're going to go for little cars too. On the contrary, look around the world. The best selling cars in the world are SUVs and they're getting bigger. Uh, perhaps half the cars sold in the world, perhaps just a little bit less, in the last year have been SUVs. You know, we're not all rushing out there and being great carbon citizens, as some of the activists would like us to be. It's not like that. We like our fossil fuels because our fossil fuels provide us with lots of things which have huge advantages to our lifestyles and what we do. And then you might say, well, don't worry, we've got hydrogen and nuclear coming down the track. Good news on both is that they're potentially very large scale. But you do have also to think through what will have to happen for us to really get these energy sources to cut into the 80% fossil fuels. You know, in a world with lots of renewables, lots of intermittent renewables, remember the nuclear power stations themselves will be intermittent too. When the wind blows, they won't be needed. When the wind doesn't blow, they're going to be needed a lot. That's a new world. The spare nuclear will need to be used for hydrogen. That means building your hydrogen alongside and in an integrated way with the nuclear. Anyone seen any evidence at all that the joined up system thinking necessary to do that is being done? Not a bit. We're in a parallel universe world in which these things are all separable activities. So what is to be done given this parallel universe? Well, the UN and the COP process, etc., has track record on this. What it tends to do is to say, we're not achieving target X, so let's invent an even tougher target. At Paris, it was pretty obvious there was going to be no legally binding agreement to the targets for the individual countries. Uh, hope back from Durban and before. And it was pretty obvious that what was being offered was not going to add up to two degrees. So, hey, well, they say, well, let's make the target 1.5 instead. Now, at least it's been recognised that 1.5 is for the birds. It's not going to happen. And so instead, what we say is, well, let's get the developed countries to bring their net zero targets back to 240 from 250. Really? Since we're not on target to achieve the 250 targets and we're not on target to achieve the two degrees, why would anyone think that changing the target to 240 is going to make much difference, and especially where the future of climate change lies heavily 
in countries like China, India, uh, sub-Saharan Africa, and so on. Precisely the countries which are not the ones for which the 240 target is now being advocated. That's not to let the developed countries off the hook, but it's simply to say, simply thinking of an even tougher target when you can't achieve the target you've already got is not really a credible framework for taking forward. And so what's the wrong thing to do now is just to double down on the targets and ratchet them up. The right thing to do is to recognise that the current approach and the COPs and the NDCs, etc., etc., are, in the genuine sense, pathetic when set against the scale of the challenge of what needs to be done. We need to ask ourselves, after 27 COPs, is this really the way we want to go? Or do we want to get into a serious universe of tackling climate change and get into a world where we start bottom-up, coalition of the willing, carbon adjustments, paying for carbon consumption, and yes, recognising that we're living beyond our carbon means, that it is unsustainable, and therefore it will not be sustained. And that ultimately is where the parallel universes are currently going. It tells us that we are not going to sustain the economies we currently have without very, very serious climate and indeed biodiversity consequences. We can either deal with it now or deal with the consequences later. But in our parallel universe, we're definitely on the path to dealing with the consequence later of lots of climate change. And that tells us that in order to reconcile our parallel universes, we have to rethink the whole climate change institution approach. Unfortunately, there is a bottom-up way of doing this. There is a coalition of the willing, but it will require you and me to accept that we are genuinely living beyond our means. And it will require politicians to tell us the truth, that it's going to cost us and cost us a lot. Whether we're prepared to pay the price is really a choice between whether you want to move to a sustainable path for our consumption going forward, or whether you want to find that it isn't going to be sustained. And what the IPCC tell us is that it isn't going to be sustained, and that's going to hit us before 2100. So it's time to wake up, smell the coffee, and realise we have to do things differently. Thank you. Thank you.